Dear Lord, make me a nail upon the wall, fastened securely in its place. Then from this thing so common and so small, hang a bright picture of thy face. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At this hour, we'd like to share with you, friends, in the science of worship, the fact that God is not partial. The impartiality of God. This message will cluster around an individual whom I'm going to call George, George the Bigot. It was another country where my wife and I were conducting a series of evangelistic meetings. <clears throat> in fact, we were in that land for many years. And George was uh, of uh, one race, not of ours. In fact, he was an East Indian. And he was very proud of his race. And he looked down on people of all other races. You know, isn't it amazing? Isn't it an amazing thing? When I was a boy back home, my daddy had black hens and white hens and brown hens and all different color hens. And I didn't find any hen saying, look, you're brown, I don't like you, pick, pick, pick. Or you're white, I don't like you, or you're black, pick, pick, pick. The hens don't have any prejudice. My father had black cows, he had white cows, he had brown cows, he had different colored cows. Nobody said, oh, look at that, that color. Mm. My father had white horses, he had black horses, he had brown horses, he had many colors of horses. My, I want to tell you how my brother and I used to like to ride those horses. Brother, we had one had a, one was a little black horse with a little white in its forehead. Man, that horse could go. And I had a little Arabian horse. <laughs> and those horses, my brother and I would get on those horses and we'd bear, ride bareback. Bar it seemed like the horses knew exactly where we wanted to go. We were, Daddy and mother were away. We didn't know that, do that when daddy and mother were around, you understand. That was when they went away. And we scared the daylights out of the neighbors. We just whispered in one of those horses' ears, <laughs> come on, black beauty. Come on, Brownie. And those horses would lop those ears, and they'd go like, gee, As I think back over that, I say, thank you, Lord. Nobody saved me but you. We had a wonderful time with all colored horses, all colored chickens, all colored colors of cows, and human beings made in the image of God can stick up a nose. Isn't that terrible? And George was one of them. He wasn't merely a racial bigot. He was a religious bigot. Oh, he was so proud of his church. We're to hold a series of meetings in his city. I'd never met him. He'd never met us. But he heard that a group of Sabbath keepers were going to pitch a galvanized tabernacle and begin some meetings in that city. And so, you know, friends, you know what a bigot would do? He went around to a minister and another minister and another minister and another minister, and he said, look, these Sabbath keepers are coming here. A, a Sabbath-keeping preacher is coming here, and 
you have a duty. Your duty is to come and sit on the front seats of his tabernacle, and right in the middle of his sermon, you interrupt him. You embarrass him so much that he'll get out of here so fast. And when the opening night arrived, and our tabernacles crammed, jammed in full of people, hundreds, I believe, on the outside beside, not one preacher of another denomination was there to confuse us. You know, friends, let's not look down on people of other denominations. Let's, no, let's not look down on people of other nationalities. Let us not look down on people of other races. We're all the children of God. Amen? Amen. So these wonderful ministers, they were Sunday keeping saints. There were saints in Sunday suits. <laughs> not one of them would come and take this non-Christian attitude. Not one. And so George was quite upset, greatly upset, in fact. He, of course, wouldn't show up either. <laughs> he didn't want to expose himself when none of the ministers would show up to confuse us. I, I knew, as I say, nothing about this whatsoever. When we had been holding our meetings maybe a couple or three weeks, we came to the subject of, uh, of the Sabbath. Which day is the Christian Sabbath? And I was showing slides through a stereopticon on a screen. And we had slides with texts of Scripture. We had slides with the artist's concepts of uh, those that were connected with these, with these Scriptures. Like at creation, we had a, the artist's concept of Jesus as creator. Uh, down through the wilderness wanderings of Israel, the artist's concept of how they were gathering manna, and so on and on and on. But there was one slide I realized I needed. I wanted a little slide that would constitute my covenant with the Lord. And I said, you know, after I share some of this message, wouldn't it be nice to give people the privilege of saying, dear Lord, you've sent me more light. And Jesus has said, walk in the light while you have the light. So why should I wait? Why shouldn't I put also on the screen a little covenant that would indicate their decision to let Jesus continue to be the Lord of their life, the light of their life, and as continuing light should shine upon their pathway, Lord, come into my life continually and help me by your grace to walk in this light. I cannot do it by myself. So I fixed up a little covenant. I asked some people, I said, can you tell me who might be able to make a slide such as I would like? They said, yes, Mr. George. Well, where is he? They said, right down here, just took three, four blocks away. I said, wonderful. So I either drove down or walked down to Mr. George's studio. And as I walked in and told him what I would like, he was not a very big man, but all there was to him strutted. <laughs> Did you ever see a thoroughbred registered strut. And I want to tell you, he knew he was important. He knew he was one of the most important men on that island. Isn't it wonderful for a man to know how very important he is? In contrast with people of other religious persuasions, people of other nationalities, people of other colors. And I explained what I would like, and he began to tell me what a man he was. 
He said, Sir, I have been patronized by royalty. Man, you could almost see the peacock plumes. He said, I have sat with a governor. They've invited me to their banquets. Tremendous personality. Every bit the beautiful, thoroughbred, registered egotist. Of course, it didn't take me long to sum him up <laughs> or size him up. He, could, uh, he thought he could fill most any suit, even a 42, <laughs> but he was really about a 23 size. <clears throat> so I said, now, I would like this slide if it would be possible on such and such a night. Would it be possible if I were to pick this up late in the afternoon? He said, sir, when I give you my word, I will keep my word. He bent so straight up, he almost went backwards. Man, what a personality. Bravo. I said, that's fine. But he said, don't forget who I am. <laughs> I couldn't forget who he was. <laughs> I couldn't forget that. So I went on my way, and you know, as the Lord would have it, as the, isn't the Lord wonderful how he works out his plans? The night that I was to come over and pick up that slide, my car was disabled. It, I couldn't get it out of the garage. And I thought, how in the world am I going to get that slide? I'd like it. There's no way. And I didn't realize right up until a few, just maybe a half an hour before the meeting took place, that I couldn't, there was no way to get there. So I said, okay, I'll just have to use it some other night. But unbeknown to me, when this good gentleman saw that I wasn't getting there in time for the slide, he decided to bring it. So he walked up. He inquired around the tabernacle, where is Mr. Kuhn? They said, well, he is busy now. You can't see him. He said, I have a slide that I wish to, I wish to, to put in his hand. They said, no, it's too late. Well, he said, you take it. Will you give it to him? They said, yes, we'll give it to him. So he expected that they would hand it to me in time for me to get among my slides and in my lecture. Little did he know that I would even never know that that slide had even shown up until after the lecture was over. So this beautiful, egotistical bigot sat there waiting to see his slide appear. As he sat there, he sat in rapt attention as a first picture came on the screen, the artist's concept of Jesus Christ, creator. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. And I still remember, it was 40 years ago, I still remember how I said to the audience, who made what was made on the first day of creation? Genesis chapter 1. Jesus, they said. Wonderful, you're right. And then I read from the Bible what was made on the second day of creation. Who made this? Jesus Christ, they said. Of course, I coached them. And the third day, who made the vegetation on the third day of creation? Jesus. Who made the sun, moon, and stars that we find recorded on the fourth day? Jesus. Who made what was made on the fifth day? Jesus. Who made what was made on the sixth day? Jesus. And you'll notice the seventh day, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God rested. 
Who rested on the seventh day? Jesus. Who blessed the seventh day, as it says here? Jesus. Who hallowed this and set it apart? Jesus. What was the seventh day of creation? The Christian Sabbath. And Mr. George looked on, literally astonished. I said, now then we know which is the Christian Sabbath from creation. And then I traced the Sabbath down through from the Bible, down through the Exodus. The Ten Commandments were given by whom? Jesus. The rock that went them, with them was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 4. On through the Old Testament, where he said in Isaiah, the Sabbath is given for the strangers and all nations. Then we came to the New Testament. Jesus appears at his hometown on a Sabbath morning, and he gives his sermon there at Nazareth, Luke 4, 16 and onward. And I said, you notice, it said, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Friends, I said, how long had it been Christ's custom to keep the Sabbath from creation? And then we traced it on. When Jesus died on Calvary, Luke chapter 23, verses 54 to 56, his followers were keeping the Sabbath according to the commandment. No lost time, same day. And then we found Jesus saying to his disciples, as found in Matthew chapter 24, at the fall of Jerusalem, which took place about A.D. 70, you still pray, and they prayed three times a day. He was telling them, pray three times a day that you can keep the Sabbath when Jerusalem shall fall. My, he wouldn't tell them to pray to keep the Sabbath if there was no more Sabbath. And then we followed the Apostle Paul, keeping the Sabbath, and the Gentiles hearing him on the Sabbath. And then we find the Apostle John saying he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. And the Lord's Day, according to Mark 2, 27, 28, is a Sabbath day, meaning rest day. And the rest day from creation, according to Hebrews 4, 4 is the seventh day. Then I went on to close, and the Bible says, when the earth is made new, this old sinful world is passed in the discard. All flesh will worship God every Sabbath day, Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. We invited people to accept Jesus, this marvelous creator who makes new hearts, who gives men new experiences, who gives men a new nature, to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And we closed our meeting. The next day, I went down to pay Mr. George for his slide. He really did a nice job. As I walked into his studio, what a change. He said, Mr. Kuhn, well, he looked like he was cut down to size. <laughs> he said, Mr. Kuhn, I have taken award after award after award as the best Sunday school teacher in this city, in my church. He said, last night I learned how little I really knew. He said, I knew nothing about the Lord's holy seventh day being given at creation. I taught my class, it's Jewish. Why, well, said, I never knew until last night it was given 2,000 years before a Jew even existed. It couldn't be a part of the law that was nailed to the cross. 
Because when the Sabbath was given, there was no sin and no sign of the cross. It's a memorial of his creation. He said, I used to think I'm smart. And I went to that meeting the, the last night thinking I was smart. He said, I want to tell you, I learned how little I really knew. Well, I said, keep coming, brother. Won't you keep coming? He didn't show up for about a week. And that night when he did come, I presented the change of the Sabbath. How the Bible said a power would arise that would think itself able to change God's law, particular that, that part that has to do with time, fourth commandment. Daniel 7, 25. And I read a statement that the power that claims to have changed it says, we will give a thousand dollars, they said, to anybody that can give a text where the Bible says that God changed it. We changed it. And when I brought that service to a close, I'd invited people to make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. And as I pronounced the benediction, while the audience was still standing after benediction, I heard a voice way in the back of the auditorium. I looked. There was a hand waving. It was a voice. It was a hand of Mr. George. And his big trumpet voice said, Mr. Kuhn, I will also give $1,000 if anybody can show me one text in all the Bible that tells us that any other day of the week is sacred other than the seventh. Let them come. I'll give them. Man alive. There he was, a Sabbath-keeping bigot. <laughs> I could hardly believe my eyes. I would go and visit him. He kept returning night after night. And he began to keep the Sabbath. I went back a few days later. He had a sign in front of his studio. This studio will be closed every seventh day, Saturday, according to the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> but you know, he went to our church and he found there were people of other races there. And he didn't like that. He wanted them all to be East Indians. <laughs> And we had a lot of wonderful black people there and some white people and some East Indians. And he learned that, that every uh, quarter of the year we would bow down and bathe one another's feet. He said, you mean, do you mean to tell me you, a white man, would bathe a black man's feet? I said, yes. Why not? You would? And then one day he heard me speak about the wonderful book, The Desire of Ages, and he began to read it. The next time I went to see him, he showed me this book, The Desire of Ages. He said, he said, Preacher, I've never read such a book in all my life outside of the Bible. He said, I could almost read it bottom side up and like it. He said, I read about the Holy Communion service. He said, the Lord's done something to my heart. Brother Kuhn, the Lord's done something to my heart. He said, I have no difficulty now. I want to come to the Holy Communion service. I'd like to bow down and wash the feet of a black man. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And I said in my heart, I believe that every black man and every white man in our church would be willing to bow down and wash the feet of this had been bigot, and they were. I had the privilege of walking into the baptistry when that man was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you, my friends, what Jesus Christ can do in a human heart is wonderful. You see, Mr. George realized as he saw the Sabbath, the beautiful Sabbath truth down through the Old Testament, it dawned over him that the Jewish nation was not to build around them walls. They were to be the light of the world. They were to go out to all nations. In Numbers 15, 14 and 15, 16, it says, the stranger shall be among you as your own people. One law, one ordinance for you. God's plan was that they'd be the light of the world. And they'd welcome in big arms of love people of all nations and all races for all are children of the living God. When I saw the change that came place over that man that took place, I said, Dear Lord, I want to thank you again that the Creator for whom the Holy Sabbath stands is still making new hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. I will take away that stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. What a wonderful Savior to me. I've come to this conclusion, friends. There are many people that have prejudices. We have prejudices in our own families. A teenage girl came to us. She said, I'm in great trouble. She said, I can't, I can't keep friends at all. Can you tell me what I should do? And we said, will you just kind of reconstruct some of the circumstances? She said, well, yes. We had a little committee meeting. They appointed me as the chairman of a, of a group of girls, maybe five or six girls. I was a chairman, chairwoman. Pardon me, in this age. <laughs> and she said, do you know? After a few meetings, nobody showed up. She said, I walked down the hallway of the girls' uh, dormitory, and all they'd say, hi. And we decided we would learn, if possible, why it was that this girl couldn't keep friends. And you know what we learned? When she was born, her mother had prayed for a boy and got a girl. As, as, as soon as this girl was old enough to understand, the mother told her, I didn't want you. And that warped that poor little girl's life until she just was demanding fellowship, demanding love, crying out for love. Mother's partiality practically destroyed this girl. I say, friends, we ought to know in the worship of our Creator that we have an international Savior. Amen? Amen. And not merely that, but it goes in all walks of life. I think of a woman. She was a grandmother that came to one of our meetings. She was illiterate. But she wanted to find Jesus, and she sent a message, would you come to my home and tell me more about Jesus? And we did, and we reviewed how you become a Christian, how we open our heart's door to Jesus. We ask him to forgive our sins and cleanse us. We believe he's doing it. We ask him to give us free of charge eternal life, and he will do it. And she accepted Christ, and she was preparing for baptism. A little later, the pastor and I said, do you know? We forgot to explain to that lady that the body is the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's certain vices that she needs victory over, for she was in a country where 
a lot of people have a lot of those habits. They grow tobacco there, in fact. So I said, let's be real careful how we do it. Let's invite people to the altar at the close of one of our meetings and uh, all who would like victory over tobacco. So we invited all who would like victory over tobacco to come forward. She didn't come. We said, what's happened? We talked to her granddaughter, and the granddaughter said, Mother smoked since I can remember. So we announced another night, all who are planning on baptism will come. She came. And I said, now, folk, are there any of you that would like victory over tobacco? And one or two raised their hand. She never raised her hand. And so I said, wouldn't you like victory over tobacco? She said, no. I said, have you never used tobacco? She said, I've used tobacco since I was a child. Well, you'd like victory. No. She said, when I gave my heart to Jesus, he gave me complete victory over the filthy weed. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Whether it's an illiterate or whether it's a king on the throne, Christ is the impartial Savior. Whosoever will may come and take the water of life freely. And I thank God for that water of life, don't you? This evening, my friends, at this hour, for those who are here and those who are viewing it at whatever hour, we want to invite you, if you've never before thought of Jesus as willing to accept the whosoever, remember that he loves us right where we are. Our sins may be as scarlet. He doesn't say, straighten up your life and then come to me. Come to me as you are. I'll do the straightening up. I'll do the cleansing. I'll give you eternal life as a free gift. That's the work of our Savior. Don't you thank the Lord for such a Savior? He's waiting to do this work in our heart if we'll just open the heart's door in simple childlike faith and let him in. While our heads are bowed in prayer, is the one that came in without the assurance of eternal life, and you will let Jesus in right now and let him do the work? If so, lift your hand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the gift of eternal life as a free gift in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. And now for our questions and answers. But first shall we bow our heads, seeking the Lord's wisdom. Dear Father in heaven, you've promised us in Psalm 32, 8, that you'll instruct us and teach us in the way we should go. You will guide us with your eye. In Jeremiah 33, 3, you've said you'll answer us. Again, you've said, inquire ye. If you will inquire, inquire ye. So we're coming, Lord, to you in the name of Jesus, for we have no merits of our own, and we're asking, believingly and claiming triumphantly, answers from your holy word in Jesus' name. Amen. First question. How can a person witness when he's carrying two full workloads? This is a good question, and, and you'll find in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The best witness in the world is the life of a Christian. It's not what he says in instructing others. It's what he is. You see, a person who is a Christian who is enjoying and relishing the life of Jesus Christ, everywhere he goes, he'll dramatize it. He may be working, and at the noon hour, some soul sitting next to him taking a lunch may suggest that I'm having a rough time. He may say, why don't we pray that the Lord will help you? Right there, he is witnessing in a beautiful way his sympathy. 
He's, he is presenting to this individual, and they think, well, isn't it wonderful? Here's somebody who cares. Therefore, God must care. So as we travel along about any activity that we have through the day, we can brush shoulders with any individual, and we can let them know that God cares. Just a little sentence, a little paragraph, a few words, and a prayer, a promise from God's Word as we travel along. You see, we don't have to cut out a big hunk of time, quote, unquote, to be witnesses. We are his witnesses. Our life is his witness. Our sympathy, our spoken faith, our interest in the happiness of others as we travel along the little dusty highway of life. This questioner says, I understand God is love, and he wants us to love one another. But God chastises us, and he is a God of wrath toward the ungodly, and therefore, when our children disobey, is it not right to let them know, as a Christian parent, that we disapprove of their wrong actions? Oh, yes, indeed, it's all right. In fact, it should be done. We should let them know we disapprove. But what we're trying to explain is this. Children don't grow in grace by our putting them under a cloud of continual disapproval. And this is what's happening in tens of thousands of so-called Christian homes. While we disapprove of that which is wrong, the Bible says in Romans 12, 21, we're to overcome evil with good. We are to speak faith in them. We're to let them know, while this was a mistake that you made, and while Jesus is hurt by it, you know, I believe by the power of Jesus, he'll give you the victory over it. And I believe in you. I believe in your sincerity. Just saturate them with faith, and they long to live up to our confidence. Here's an interesting question. How can you get three days and nights out of Christ being in the heart of the earth if he died Friday and rose Sunday morning? I think that's in Matthew 12, 39 to 40. Right. You may want to take some notes on this. Number one, where in the world do you find any place in the Bible where it says the grave is the heart of the earth? There's no Bible text that says the grave is the heart of the earth. Christ did not have to be in the grave three days and three nights, for the grave is nowhere said to be the heart of the earth. Isn't it interesting how we assume so many things that aren't true at all? Let's go back now for a moment. Point two. In Matthew 12, 39, Jesus said, as they sought for a sign, he said, there shall no sign be given you except the sign of Jonas, the prophet. What's that saying? It is saying that only one sign would be given them, not two, not three. Only one sign. All right, number three. Would this sign have anything to do with the resurrection? No way. How do you, how do you mean, Brother Kuhn, that this sign is not the resurrection? In in Luke 16, and the last verse, the Bible says, If they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe the one rose from the dead. And in John 5, 46, Jesus said to these people, You don't believe Moses, so you're not believing my words. So he spoke to a sinful and adulterous generation that sought after a sign. This sinful and adulterous generation did not believe in, in Moses and the prophets. 
Therefore, he would not give them the sign of the resurrection, not them. You'll never find after Christ rose from the dead, his appearing to the unbelievers and saying, see, the sign is fulfilled. Never once. Not to the unbelievers. What then was the sign of Jonas? Number four. You'll be surprised. As Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's talking about a whale. He's talking about a prophecy. It shall be. In symbolic prophecy, a day is a year. Numbers 14, 34, and Ezekiel 4, 6. So the Son of Man would be three full years in the heart of the earth. In symbolic prophecy, number six, in symbolic prophecy, what is the heart? Proverbs 23, 7. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. In symbolism, the heart is the mind. For three years, Christ would be in the mind of the earth. In symbolic prophecy, what's the earth? Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear, O earth, earth. That's the people. So for three full years, Jesus Christ would be in the mind, the attention of the people. During these three, three years, Jesus gave these people the true sign. The true sign was not his resurrection, not to them. He told them what the true sign was. In John 10, 25, he said, you don't believe me, but if you don't believe me, believe my works. They testify of me. The life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, was the true sign. You might also be interested in a more complete study of this in a book entitled The Desire of Ages. There's a chapter in the book The Desire of Ages that is entitled The True Sign. In this chapter, under the true sign, you'll find statement after statement of Scripture which indicates that the sign was Christ's ministry. Christ's ministry from the time he was baptized until he died was only three years and a half. But all that time he was not in the mind of the people. For six weeks alone he was out on the mountain in the temptations, you remember. So now let us notice what happens. Jesus was speaking to a sinful and adulterous generation. Jesus made very clear to them that they did not believe Moses and the prophets, John 5, 46. It was also made clear to them that if they did not believe Moses and the prophets, the sign of the resurrection would not be theirs. Luke 16, the last verse, 31. He also declared to them that only one sign would be given. He also said the sign was his works, his ministry. His ministry constituted the sign. His life was the light of men. There's no text in the Bible that says the grave is the heart of the earth. So Jesus was for three full years revealing the beauty of the character of God, what God is like. This was the true sign. Thank you so much. Someone just shot a question in here, Pastor Kuhn. They say, I can see your very clear point regarding this question. However, Jesus himself said 
to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Isn't that talking about from death to resurrection? That is, yes. But that said, in three days or the third day. Whenever Jesus t spoke of his resurrection, he said he would rise the third day or in three days or after three days, all being within the space. This was speaking of his resurrection. But Matthew 12, 39 is speaking about the true sign. And the true sign to them was not the resurrection. The true sign to him, to them, was his ministry. I'd like to recommend that you read that chapter very, very carefully, very thoroughly, very prayerfully, and you'll find that the true sign was Christ's ministry. In the Bible, it says that even Christ at times showed righteous anger, such as when he threw the money changers bodily out of the temple twice. Is it ever righteous for us to be angry? Yes, indeed. It is righteous. We can be righteously indignant at Phariseeism, hypocrisy. But you'll find this, that when Christ did it, it was righteous indignation. It was not a selfish egotism that showed itself. In most cases, individuals who show righteous indignation, quote-unquote, are merely giving vent to their emotionalism. Let us be extremely careful that we will represent the Lord Jesus Christ rather than shoving our weight around, you see. This person says, Why do we not have an account for the early years of Jesus' life? Please share some texts regarding this, if possible. There are no texts. <laughs> there are no texts. The, the Bible is silent about Christ's life from the time that he was 12 years old until he was baptized. All it has to say is there in Luke 2, 46 and onward, it says that he went home, he grew in grace and in favor with God and men. He returned and was subject to his parents. It's a complete silence from that time until his ministry began. Since the Bible doesn't tell us why it was, evidently the Lord didn't see that that was important. You see, there are just a lot of things that the Bible doesn't tell us about. Have you ever noticed it? And I thought, why didn't the Lord tell me a little bit more about this? Why didn't he tell me a little more about this? It's clear that he was a carpenter. He was with his father there. That's clear because later they said, is this not the carpenter's son? We know his father, we know his mother, we know his brothers, we know his sister, we know these. That was true. But oh, how many times I've just wished that somehow the Lord would have seen fit to fill me in a little more, don't you? Haven't you felt that way? But he's given us all that is essential to our salvation. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things that are revealed belong unto us and our children. Please read 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, and explain. All right. We, we have our Bible right here, and I'm going to put on my glasses and read 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. And please explain. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. <clears throat> For every creature of God is good, 
and nothing to be refused. If it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. It's very clear. Every creature of God, everything that God has created, that his word has sanctified is good. What has his word sanctified as being good among the animal kingdom? Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Anything that his word has not sanctified as good is to be refused. Just those things which his word clearly sanctifies are good. Isn't that good? Now, it doesn't mean that from that day down through that certain things won't be diseased. It isn't speaking of that. We don't want to eat anything diseased, whether it's uh, cheese or, or whether it's uh, good wholesome milk that's, that's now soured, you know. He's not speaking of that. Why do they baptize people still wearing jewelry and some still smoking? Years ago, people had to take them off before baptism. Why has it changed? I don't know. I don't do it. Ask them. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know of anybody else that does it. But maybe they do. Ask them. Proverbs 25, 9. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor, what? Himself. And discover not the secret to another. Proverbs 25, 9. Uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 18. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go to him alone. Thank you. Next question. How does a parent direct a teenage child and still give him a choice to teach him to make his own decisions? It's very, very important. In every case, little children are to be disciplined to obey their parents. We've said it, I guess, a hundred times, and we'll say it again. I believe that the first law of discipline is obedience. But within this area of obedience, we are to train our children as fast as possible, according to their developing character, you see, to make choices. The reason for our helping them to make choices is this. There can be no development of character without the power to choose. I like the way my favorite author has, has worded this in the beautiful book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 49. In fact, this is why sin was permitted, because God, while God asks man to obey him, God gives man the power to choose, for without this power to choose, man can't love. You can't force love. But now we're talking about little children. Little children must be taught to obey. They must be taught that we expect implicit obedience. We don't expect uh, our children to say, uh, I'm going to wait. Daddy says, I'll count 10. And if you haven't obeyed by the time I say 10, you're going to get it. No, no, no. We're teaching them to disobey until we get up to 9 or 10. They're to be taught that in every case, God expects implicit obedience. If they obey us, we can expect them to obey the laws of the land. We can expect them to obey a God, you see. But within this area of discipline and obedience, we're to teach our children in every way possible how to make little choices as, as they are able to be responsible for those choices. We reserve to our right, however, to make the major choices for even little children. And as they grow up, 
say when they're maybe half grown, we should have taught them how to have made maybe half of their choices. That reserves about 50% to ourselves. When they're two-thirds grown, we should have taught them how under the power of God and claiming God's promises, they can make about two-thirds of their choices. That still reserves to us one-third, do you see? Very important. But how are we going to teach them to make choices? As I've mentioned before, my daddy let me uh, have a little garden. I could choose what I wanted to plant in that garden. He permitted me to have some chickens. I could choose what kind of chickens I wanted, whether white leghorns or anconas or what have you. I could also choose what feed I would get to my, give to my chickens. He would tell me what he gave to his chickens, and naturally I would choose the same kind that he had, but he didn't force me to choose the same. Uh, children can be taught to have little uh, accounts, little bookkeeping accounts. A little children can be taught, a little girl can be taught color combinations and how to make choices of color combinations to go to Sabbath school in church. There are just a number of ways by which we can encourage our children to make little choices. In addition to that, when we're in worship, oh, what song would you choose, Mary? Now that may sound uh, simplistic, but my friends, it's vital uh, for a little child to be able to make a choice of a song in worship. It means very much to a child, and it is part of the development of character. What do you think about this, Johnny? And Johnny expresses an opinion. Uh, I remember when, <laughs> I remember when uh, our children were children, uh, we, were, we were kind of playing around with this idea of choice, and I can't say that we did the best deal by any means, but one day we decided we'd go out on a Sunday for a picnic. Right away, both of our children wanted us to go past Dairy Queen. <laughs> no, 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 I've got it all wrong. No, they, they wanted us to go a certain place. I felt that it would be better if we went to another place. Now I'm getting it straight. So I said, we're going to vote on it. There are four of us, and the majority will carry. Now I said, if we go to such and such a place, and I tried to be real casual, you know. I didn't say, if we go to the place you choose. I said, if we go to this place, we will go straight there. If we go to this place, I said, on the road to this place, there's a Dairy Queen. That was the, the place I thought we should go, but I wanted them to choose. And on the way, we'll stop at the Dairy Queen and have a little uh, ice cream cone apiece. Now we will vote. <laughs> Do you notice it was wonderful how they chose? <laughs> and they wanted to choose. When they, now the Lord says, I come quickly and my reward is with me. God gives a reward for us making good choices. That isn't to bribe us. Bribery is when we get a reward for making wrong choices. Thank you. Next one. This is from a young person. <clears throat> Pastor Kuhn, my mom and dad are always fighting and screaming at each other. And us kids, we hate it but we don't know what to do about it. We've prayed, but they keep on fighting. Please, Mr. Kuhn, tell me what to do to make them stop fighting all the time. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. I suppose that is the cry of thousands of young people. Oh, that Daddy and Mommy would stop screaming at each other. You might suggest to Daddy and Mommy that they would learn. <laughs> That's going to be hard. 
Maybe there's some way you could put into their hands. Because dad and mother, if they're screaming at each other, and if they won't pay any attention to what each other say, they probably won't pay much attention to what you say. But you might pray that the Lord would help them to learn the seven secrets of the sitting down method of making decisions. You know what the seven laws are of sitting down making decisions? Number one. Number one, the law of the one-track mind, Philippians 3.13, which means dad and mother, as well as anybody else, should not be throwing in problems when the mind of the other is on something else. All through the day, no, no throwing in of problems. Anything that could possibly be left until they sit down. That's number one, because the mind is a one-track. And the Bible says whatever we do, we're to do with all our might. If I'm doing something with all my might and somebody throws in another problem, it confuses me. And it does anybody else too. And that will cause us to retaliate and to maybe scream. Some will scream. Some never have screamed. But they look screamy, <laughs> you know. Number two, there's a time for them to sit down. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 11. Everything is beautiful in its time and there's a time for everything. Number three, they should sit down when they discuss. Luke 14, 28 to 30. Number four, when they do discuss, they should merely identify the problem. They shouldn't go into, uh, into orbit around the problem. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. By beholding, we're changed in the same image. So we merely identify the problem. And number five, we go immediately into the solution. But in going into the solution, we realize that as we discuss solutions instead of problems, the emotions are solution-centered. If we talk about problems, look, you've been doing this all the time, and I don't know, I, you just, it seems you'll never change. No, no. That creates negative emotions and causes people to throw up their defenses. Number six is this. Before we sit down, whoever poses a problem should first have asked God to give him wisdom, James 1.5, to suggest one or more solutions so that you merely identify that problem, as we stated in earlier point, merely identify the problem and suggest a solution. Number seven, when we suggest the solution, we should be humble enough to say, probably your solution would be better. Now, what does that mean? That means, uh, by the way, that's uh, Philippians 2, 3, esteeming other better than ourselves. When we follow those seven rules, we can sit down and discuss solutions instead of problems. We merely identify the problem. There would be no murmuring and no complaining if parents would follow God's word. Now, the Bible commands us not to murmur and dispute. Here it is, Philippians 2.14. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. God definitely commands that we won't be screaming at each other. We won't be murmuring. We will not be disputing. Then he said, you'll be lights of the world. Thank you, son or daughter for that beautiful question. Our last uh, question in this session is, my husband has a love affair with old cars. He owns about eight of them, and he spends all of his spare time tinkering with them. 
I'm an attractive woman, and I have a lot to offer him if I could get his head out of the carburetor long enough to realize it. I'm just about at the end of my muffler. Got any suggestions? Yes, the first is, I believe that you are a writer. You ought to author a whole book. I wish you'd help us in writing. I want to tell you, that is a classic. That is a classic. Muffler and all. Carburetor and all. <laughs> now, that we can only touch on a couple points now because our time is almost up. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, it says, I will allure. Every time that you belittle him, you see, every time you, you complain, you drive him away. But as you take an interest in these old antiques, <laughs> take an interest with him in it, see, then you're together in it. Make his interest your interest. And you know what he's liable to do as you praise up on those antiques? He's liable to put his arm around you as an antique, <laughs> if you are an antique. <laughs> and if you're not an antique, he's liable to put his arm around you anyway. Because you've taken an interest in his interests. If he won't take an interest in yours, do as Jesus did. Jesus was continually taking an interest in other people's interests. Then you're right with him. You see, you're smiling. You're congratulating him for, for, these, for these old antiques that I don't like at all, and you don't either. But he does, and evidently they have some value. And in the meantime, claim God's promises that you'll be so alluring to him that he'll love you just like he loves those old cars. And Jesus said, ask and you will receive, and your joy will be full. John 16, 24. Let's do it. Let's go to him for his promises and claim them and let us pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you. You are the source of our wisdom. Thank you for hearing. Thank you for answering. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.